HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by the International Culinary Center, offering courses that range from classic French techniques in culinary, pastry, and bread baking to Italian studies to management, from culinary technology to food writing, from cake making to wine tasting. For more information, visit internationalculinarycenter.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good morning. You're listening to In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org, coming to you live at 10 a.m. from the shipping crate, one of the shipping crates here at Roberta's Restaurant in Bushwick. Um, I'm super excited today. I've, uh, uh, I'm here with Matt Licklider, one of the founders of Lioko Wines. And uh, Lioko is one of those wines that, that really changed my mind. It was a, a, about American wines. It was one of the first wines that I tasted where I thought, wow, something else is going on here and I need to pay attention because... Uh, I never could have imagined putting an American Chardonnay on one of our lists uh, when we opened up Del Anima six years ago. And now we're pouring Lioko Chardonnay Sonoma Coast by the glass at La Picho. Um, so I'm super excited to have Matt here. Um, welcome, Matt. Thanks, Joe. Nice to be here. Uh, and also, just uh, through the years, I, I've known Matt. His uh, sister actually lives around the corner from one of our restaurants and has, has come in the years and just always thought he was, uh, at first, it's like, oh, what a nice guy. Cool, that's cute. He has a, a winery in California. I'm never going to like it. And then uh, I remember the first time tasting uh, one of the wines and saying, oh, wow, I know the guy who makes, who's like involved in that winery. That's, that's absolutely brilliant. I'm so happy about that. And uh, as I said, now, like, now we have multiple uh, Lioco wines uh, over at, at La Picho. Um, what, so tell us a little bit about what, what got you into, uh, into the wine business yeah, and how I'll, we ended up here. Sure. First of all, you should know that um, it was no accident that you and I became friends. I was stalking you, Joe, um, because it's no secret that uh, that my partner and I uh, kind of cut our teeth on European wine and and took an early interest in the, the natural wine movement. So um, oftentimes I'd find myself staying in the West Village, and there was only one place to go and drink, um, so that was Anfora. And I'd been going in there and uh, educating myself on your list and kind of what you liked and 
you know, always enjoyed coming in for a, for a glass of wine, all the, all the same. Um, so it's fun that we uh, we've eventually crossed paths on the professional front as well. Um, you know, Kevin and I uh, started back in 2005, um, but before that time, um, I was a wine salesperson and Kevin was a sommelier, and we had a, a very standard kind of professional relationship. We'd, we'd been tasting wine um, in the back alley behind Spago Beverly Hills where he was the wine director, you know, spitting in the drain for years. Um, and we had this kind of ongoing dialogue about, you know, the wine business, who was making interesting wine and why and who wasn't. And inevitably we'd end up lamenting about California wine. Um, because at that time I was selling European wine. He was largely buying European wine and California was sort of, uh, you know, in a funk. I think this was like in the late nineties. Um, particularly with Chardonnay. Um, we, we always said, you know, Chardonnay in California was going through a fat Elvis phase. Um, and it kind of <laughs> lost its way and boy, wouldn't it be neat if, if there were some more people kind of taking it, uh, taking it for the team with Chardonnay. So that's, that conversation sort of brewed over the course of five years before we sat down and started the, the concept for our wine label. Um, but really, yeah, it was sort of a, uh, a response to, um, the, our feeling about California wine and, and, and the way that it had gone, you know, we just felt it was so, so derivative and, uh, and not terribly compelling with a few sort of exceptions. Mm-hmm. You know, there were obviously some outliers doing great work like Literai and Mount Eden and, and the like, but, uh, but the, you know, the thrust of the California movement had really gone off track. And before California, you spent some time in, uh, in Colorado. Uh, what, what do you think? There's so many just, uh, great wine people who've come out of this, mountainous area. Right. <laughs> Tell us about your time in Colorado and, and uh, what what influenced you during that time. Right, sure. Um, I think like a lot of us, I kind of fell into the wine business um, by way of the restaurant business. So after I graduated college, uh, I moved out to Colorado for a season, quote, uh, to go skiing. And, uh, you know, five years later, I left kicking and screaming. But while I was there, I was a very bad waiter um, in a restaurant um, with a very good wine program. And uh, there was a consulting uh, sommelier, a master sommelier by the name of Damon Ornowski. I don't know if you've ever met Damon. Good guy. Anyhow, he's, he's from New York, I believe, originally. And uh, he used to come in and, and train the servers on, on wine. And we would open Bordeaux and Burgundy and German wine and California wine. And um, this guy was just so lit up by wine. Um, I could just see it in him. He just loved it. And it inspired me. Um, and he was also a great skier and a great cyclist. So I was sort of compelled by this guy anyways. And, um, one of these training sessions, I remember he opened up a, a bottle of 96 Shamble Musini. I unfortunately don't remember the producer, but I remember it was Shamble Musini. And that, that's the one that kind of spoke to me and it really, it, you know, it sunk the hooks in deep. Um, and you know, from that point forward, I started to take more of an interest as a waiter, um, recommending wines on the floor and other waiters would kind of defer to me about wine. Um, but I kind of got to the point where I wanted to move on from waiting tables in Aspen, Colorado. And, uh, another notorious character in town, Bobby Stuckey, another, uh, master sommelier, um, was a friend of mine. And I kind of put the word out that I was interested in, uh, moving into the wine side of the business. And, 
you know, he made a recommendation, kind of hooked me up with a friend of his uh, that had a small distributorship based out of Boulder. And uh, I went to work as a sales rep um, in Vail, Colorado. And I, that, that's where I started. So for two years, I was dragging a bag around Vail and Beaver Creek and Breckenridge and, you know, skiing 100 days a year and riding my bike all summer. And wow, it's some good living out in... It's good living. In Colorado. I never should have left, quite frankly. <laughs> but uh, I yeah. think you're doing all right in Sonoma <laughs> right now. Uh, uh, but why... I'm, still, I'm trying to figure out, is it just like this super human race of like tasters and overachievers and athletic people what draws people like this to colorado especially to boulder uh anytime i I meet someone from there i'm like wow you are just so like in shape and super smart and but also like relaxed Mm. in a way that new yorkers don't have that (laughs) (laughs) uh that's really an interesting question um yeah, I think there, there's a number of elements um, that conspire to, to create that environment in Colorado. You know, it's, number one, it is um, a very outdoorsy place, so people are pretty energized, they're pretty athletic and fit, um, and uh, um, there's, there's this other part of it that's the, the shoulder seasons, as they call it, which are these periods of, of, of down business um, where there's li- literally nothing mm-hmm. to do up in the mountains. Um, so from an academic standpoint, um, you know, I think there's a lot of master sommeliers that come out of the mountains because, you know, they're busting tail during the busy season, just like any New Yorker or mm-hmm. someone from San Francisco. But then the shoulder season hits and they've got a month and a half on either side of the shoulder season where they could stick their nose in a book or taste or meet and travel and, and, um, and really kind of make advances um, along their studies. So I think that's that's a part of it, too. There's also, you know, sort of the high culture, okotor uh, of Aspen and Vale, you know, you can go up to the mountains and eat in some real serious restaurants with serious wine programs. So there's there's a general level of interest in food and wine up there, and I think that that's part of it too. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. So how did you find leaving the restaurant industry to uh, to go work uh, in sales? You know, I I did the opposite, <laughs> and I remember speaking with the owner of the company, uh, Dominic Nutrino from Vinifera Imports. And he was like, Joe, you're crazy. Like, why? No one leaves sales to go work in a restaurant. That's the opposite thing to do. And that's when I took the job at, at Babo's Esmalier. Um, but how did, how did you find that? It's a complete change of lifestyle. Most definitely. Yeah. And I think I wasn't fit for the, the restaurant lifestyle. It was beating me down, um, being on my feet, uh, you know, every night and, uh, and trying to make turns during the day. I just, I was kind of ready for for a change. There was this other part of it too, where I wasn't like you. Um, I wasn't, a, uh, I wasn't yet in my entrepreneurial, uh, phase of, of starting my own project and, uh, restaurant wise. So, you know, I think you get to the point where you're just ready to not work for somebody else. Um, and I kind of saw more of a career path, uh, springing out of, uh, the wine sales end of things. And I did that for many years. I mean, I went and worked for a couple of different importers in the Bay Area. That's eventually what got me out of Colorado was I, I had an opportunity to sell Italian wine for, uh, for Brian Larkey uh, at Dallaterra. You know that portfolio. Um, as a national person. Um, so, you know, it was just sort of a more uh, clearly defined um, uh, career path, I guess. Um, and, it, you know, you never know where it's going to take you. You know, you sort of take an interest in this thing and you just sort of follow your nose. And this, at this time when you were working for Dallaterra, you, I imagine you were doing a bunch of travel. I'm always amazed. I, you know, I've been, uh, I, I'll see your wines all over the place. I've, I've had uh, Leo, Leoko, Charles Heinz Chardonnay in um, 
Uchi and Austin and Indica Red in uh, uh, a few restaurants in uh, in Charleston. So like all over, obviously in California, New York, your your wines have for a smaller production scale wine. It's nice to see them in some really cool places. Yeah, I think when you um, when you're building the brand, so to speak, you sort of have to uh, determine yourself to the gypsy lifestyle. And, uh, you know, people always asking, where do you live? You know, and I'm sort of like, well, it depends on the time of the year. This time of year, I kind of live out of my 22 inch roller bag, um, wherever it ends up. Um, so yeah, people like us, um, you know, we spend a lot of time on the road talking about wine and that's, that's kind of what my job has become about. And what's actually kind of gets me going is not just talking about Lioko, but sort of going back to what you said early on, which is actually talking about this movement mm-hmm. that's happening in California because that's what juices me. It's not it's not selling boxes of Lioko. It's it's feeling like I'm a part of something that's that's um, lasting and important in California, which is this move away from these big clunky um, wines that don't really have their place at the dinner table toward wines that are genuinely about a place um, and a vintage and that are, you know, the primary goal is expressing those things and achieving balance in the wines. So I think when Kevin and I first started, we sort of felt like we were salmon swimming upstream making wines like this. I mean, our Chardonnay program for the first seven years didn't use any oak at all. It was all stainless steel. And I remember people used to look at us like, are you, are you serious? Really? Well, like a little bit of used oak or does it go into oak ever? It's like, no, no oak, you know? Um, so that was back in the early two thousands. And now, you know, we could sit here and talk about all sorts of really compelling domestic wine projects, um, particularly on the Sonoma side of things, um, where people are just, um, you know, kind of following their hearts and making the kind of wines they want to drink. And what, what do you think uh, was the biggest disconnect between making balanced terroir-driven wines and what was prevailing? What were, what were the first things where you're like, I'm totally, you know, not going to pick after, you know, October 1st or whatever it is. Like, what, what were the, your first steps, your biggest changes? You're like, this, these are things that we're definitely going to be doing to make the, the kind of wines that we want to make. First thing I think was was identifying the right vineyard sources, you know, because there's there were plantings all over California, particularly with Chardonnay, um, and as you know, you know Chardonnay will grow anywhere, but it won't necessarily deliver a compelling wine anywhere. So I think, you know, we started from the very bottom and said, where are the interesting places in California where Chardonnay is growing? You know, with tougher soils, with more interesting aspect, with the right temperature and water gradients. Um, and then, you know, from there, you know, once we felt like we had the right raw material, um, it was sort of um, committing to a path of non-intervention and um, just sort of trusting um, this miraculous process of fermentation, not getting too involved. I mean, we weren't fancy winemakers. We were, we, you know, we, we always talked about how the fruit was grown. We very seldom talked about how, how the wine was made. And for the first, you know, seven or eight years, Kevin and I, you know, it was like hardcore natural wine. It was like native yeast and no additions and very, very low sulfur and just sort of seeing where the wines went. And, um, I think that was, you know, that was a compelling, uh, story for a lot of people because especially from California, you know, most California wines, people associated with highly, uh, manufactured wines or manipulated wines. So, uh, yeah, I think that was kind of the, uh, the, the distinction that we were able to make. Okay, and uh, so what? Are, what are the the various roles? I know you you have a new uh, winemaker. That's right. Uh, who just joined? 
John Ray Tech, who's a superstar, uh, in, in, at least in, in my eyes and in, in a lot of uh, the eyes of, of Smiley's, who I know and respect, uh, who also does the, the Ceratos label. That's right. um, so it's you, John, and Kevin. Yep. So we, um, we've, we have a bona fide team of, of, uh, of five people now, um, which is exciting. We've got John making the wines for us. Um, we've got, we hired a national salesperson so that um, I don't have to live on the road all the time. Um, a really talented, um, super passionate uh, guy named John Mark, who lives in Seattle. He's, an, he's a European wine guy galore as well, so kind of culturally he fit right in. We're actually teaching him about California wine, which is how we wanted it. <laughs> we not have to teach him about the traditional wines, but we're teaching him about California. Um, we've got a really talented um, kind of winery host that, um, that sees people when they come visit the winery. His name is Jim Cooner. Um, Who I actually worked with <laughs> 10 years right, ago. Right. Uh, at Italian wine merchants with uh, with uh, my business partner August and uh, and uh, and Catherine, who's also our business partner and the executive pastry chef. We all worked at Italian wine merchants here in New York, actually in two thousand four, two thousand five. That's funny. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I forgot you guys know each other. Um, and then, of course, my partner, you know, Kevin O'Connor, um, who is uh, a notorious character, grew up uh, in not far from here in the Bronx, and uh, you know, a classic Irish Italian kid from the Bronx making wine in California, um, who is about to open a restaurant oh. in, in Santa Monica. All right. I want to hear all about the restaurant, but we're going to take just a quick, uh, quick break, and we'll be back with more with Matt Licklider of the Oco. You're listening to IDID by Obesity on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. so far support the network and become a member membership helps us bring you the best food radio in the world and gives you access to thousands of dollars in discounts at the sustainably minded businesses that support us to become a member visit heritageradionetwork.org today The International Culinary Center is a proud sponsor of the HeritageRadioNetwork.org. The ICC, with locations in New York and California, provide cutting-edge education to future chefs, restaurateurs, and wine professionals. We're proud to claim Dan Barber, Bobby Flay, and David Chang among our honored alumni. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton from Chef Story. Check out our ICC website at InternationalCulinaryCenter.com. And we're back on In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm here with Matt Licklider of Lioko Wines. And we were just catching up on the, uh, on the extensive infrastructure of five people at the, at the, at the winery. Um, and you said that your, your business partner, Kevin's about to open up a, a restaurant. Yeah, he is. So, um, you know, Kevin came, kind of came up uh, by way of the restaurant industry and, um, although he became a wine producer, I don't think he ever got it out of his blood like you. Um, he, uh, I think he always wanted back in. And so um, the opportunity kind of arose for him to um, start a side project um, 
And uh, I'm not sure that I'm at liberty to tell you the name of the restaurant just yet, but I will tell you that it's going to be in Santa Monica in a very hot neighborhood. Um, and the concept is, you know, one that we can all appreciate, which is really, really simple, simplified food, wine-friendly food, and, you know, kind of a deep, um, super interesting wine list. Um, I'm kind of seeing it like being an industry hangout, um, which, you know, I think LA needs more of those. That, that, that is very cool. Um, how... how- <laughs> it's just funny that you also you also always hear the story of the sommelier going and starting the wine <laughs> but you don't it's rare that you that you hear the story of the now winemaker going back and uh getting back into the restaurant industry i guess uh i guess the winemaking lifestyle is a little too outdoorsy for him, or... <laughs> he's an outdoorsy type nowadays um he drives a camper van he's all about the camping lifestyle but uh no, I think, um, like I said, I think it's just Kevin's always had it in his blood. Um, and, you know, the two kind of, I think, play neatly off one another. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you know what Bobby, Bobby Stuckey and Lachlan are doing with Frasca. You know, they're, they're restaurateurs of the highest order. It's one of my favorite restaurants in the country. But um, they are also now serious wine producers, making wine in Italy. So I don't think it needs to be one or the other. And I think that kind of goes hand in glove with what's happening and what's exciting about the wine world is that it's gotten really dynamic. It's not so rigid. There's a lot of people entering the game from different sides with different perspectives and participating in, in, in really new and in interesting ways. So I'm really excited for Kevin and I am hoping that, um, he'll buy some Lyoko cause you know, <laughs> he never used to buy wine for me when I was selling uh, North Berkeley imports. <laughs> so you do a ton of travel. Um, what, what are some of the trends that you're seeing? Um, where, where are some unexpectedly really cool places to drink wine? And, uh, yeah, what are you, what are you noticing in your travels? Right. Well, see, I made that mistake uh, once before Joe of, of telling some of my colleagues how great Charleston was for, for domestic wine. And, uh, (laughs) it's turned into this, uh, this real scene, which is, which is actually kind of good. Um, it's, yeah. I mean, it is awesome down there. Yeah. Charleston is just one great restaurant after another. And then, what surprised me was was how interesting and cool and sophisticated the wine lists were. Exactly. Uh, yeah, they're, they're, you know, I think the basis point for Charleston kind of coming of age was that there was always a very well-entrenched food culture, mm. you know, going back to really traditional Southern food and, and all the influences going back to like Civil War era. And, you know, there were a few chefs there that were super interested in, in heirloom varieties and, and old style recipes like Mike Lotta from Fig and Sean Brock from, from McCready's and Husk, you know, um, world-class chefs. And, um, I think from there it just kind of it kind of took off and ran, and the wine I think always follows the food in that way. So um, it's exciting. I'm actually headed there this afternoon for the <clears throat> the Charleston Wine and Food Festival, which is this weekend, and um, you know it's promising to be a real shindig. Wow! Yeah, that I'm, I'm hoping next year to uh, to get down to the Charleston Food and Wine Festival. I mean, that'd be great. It's it's just such a fun place. I, I had a really good uh, good time at Mike Lotta's new uh, raw bar type restaurant seafood restaurant had probably the most impressive seafood tower of my life there we got the grand plateau but uh just one awesome you know super super fresh fish after another and then uh and then yeah another another great place to drink and and really cool cocktails cocktails that you picture at you know uh, one of these like new york speakeasy brooklyn kind of bars but they're you know, at a really bright, airy, like welcoming, all-inclusive kind of place. Yeah. Uh, 
Really cool place. Yeah, there's there's a real culture for it, um, and it's it's spread from there. It's not just in Charleston, but I think all over the southeast. Birmingham, Alabama is another place. Um, I mean, one of the best chefs in the country, Frank Stitt. Um, has three restaurants there. I mean, he's, you know, sort of the Alice Waters of the South. Um, you know, the guy's a genius. And, you know, uh, you never think Birmingham, Alabama. But it's the same kind of thing. It's, it's this um, very um, contemporary rendering of ultra-traditional food from the South. And it, it will just blow you away. Truly. That, that is so funny. We were riding over on the L train this morning with uh, Alex Moskovitz, who's our executive producer, and I'm like, what should I ask him? Like, what's what's cool and unique? And I should ask him, she's like, well, you know, Matt, like, does all this travel. Um, ask him what they drink in Birmingham, Alabama. I swear <laughs> to God she said that. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, well, um, in Frank's restaurants, which um, I think, you know, are kind of where all roads lead there and from there. Um, they drink a lot of Kermit Lynch wines. <laughs> Fortunately, they, they've, they've, uh, they've seen the light uh, in California, too. Actually, Frank Stitt came out for the West of the West Festival um, last year in Occidental. And, you know, he's amazing. Guy's been doing it for 30 years or something, maybe more. Um, and he's still so much a student of the game. I mean, he still travels and, and, and wants to know what's going on and what's new. And um, it's, really, uh, it's really inspiring. So you were at the uh, West of the West tasting just yesterday, which uh, unfortunately I could not make it to. It was super disappointing because there were some of my uh, some of my favorite winemakers there. But how how did it go for you, and what how how do you think that those wines were being received by the New York market? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, so the West of the West tasting <clears throat> originated in Occidental, California, where a lot of the, the you know vineyards are in close proximity to this town, Occidental, this great old sort of California timber town. Um, and uh, we decided that we would bring this festival to points east, and New York was an obvious choice, um, largely because um, all of the producers who participate um, tend to sell quite a bit of wine in New York. I think there's a market for our style wines, these kind of lower alcohol, higher acidity wines here. So it was fantastic. I mean, there were two segments. There was one for the trade in the morning. We had a great turnout and uh, really high-level discussions, um, and then a, a short break. Uh, and then a consumer portion in the evening, which was completely packed. And that's always the thing that we get excited about because for a lot of small wineries like Lioko, what really kind of keeps the lights on is um, our ability to maintain um, direct sales to our mailing list customers. And a lot of us have mailing list customers in New York. So they turned out in droves and, you know, everybody wants to sign up for mailing lists. And it's uh, it's really exciting. Um, a lot of times I kind of dread doing these consumer tastings, but mm-hmm. this one was just electric. I came out feeling really supercharged. Well, how did you initially, I always wondered this, and I never actually asked anyone, but how do you build up that initial mailing list? You, you, you produce your first wine. What, what's that next step? What do, what do you do? Well, I think to your point about traveling around and, and seeing the wines in, in the restaurants of, of, of note around the country, I mean, that, to me, um, maybe that's old-fashioned. Um, but I, there's a couple ways to do it. Um, you can certainly go after the press and try and get some good scores and, um, you know, rely on, uh, rely on uh, that. But Kevin and I never went that direction. Um, we weren't making wines for the press. We were making wines, you know, for the dinner table. And so, you know, our target were great restaurants. And I think, you know, the last five years we've spent putting the wines in front of the tastemakers in Birmingham and Charleston and Atlanta and, you know, Aspen, um, Chicago, Phoenix, all over the country. Um, 
So I think when people start to see your wines on the right wine lists, um, you know, something registers for them and they take an interest and maybe they visit the website and they sign up for your mailing list and, and uh, you know, it goes from there. Uh, but it's a slow building process, mm-hmm. you know, short of getting a 98 point score from Robert Parker. Um, it's a, it's a short process. So, yeah. And then, uh, what, so who, what do you, what do you foresee as, as the future? Do you think that we've kind of hit this critical mass where we have enough wine out there that people want in this, uh, you know, in this more balanced style, or do you think that there, there's going to be more and more coming out, uh, I think, yeah, I think it's the natural progression of things. I mean, when I was younger, I used to eat bologna and, and Velveeta, and I love those flavors, you know. And now as an adult, you know, I eat more Della and Telegio, you know. <laughs> so um, I think it's like your palate evolves. As we get older, we tend to, we tend to gravitate toward um, more complexity um, in, in, the, in the flavors that, that appeal to us. Um, and so I think, and we've always thought this, that what we were doing was – um, the natural order of things that, that eventually the collective kind of American palette was going to grow up, um, and, uh, be, take more of an interest in, in, uh, food and, um, and wine of, of restraint. We didn't need to be clobbered over the head with big, obvious flavors. Um, so that's, that's kind of what we believed and we're seeing it. We're seeing it. It's great. I mean, there's, you know, this movement that we're talking about, I think would not be sustained unless, there was a genuine kind of growing interest on the consumer level. And uh, thus far, knock on wood, um, it seems to be going all right. So so let's, let's talk a little bit more uh, just a, about the movement. Um, it's beyond low alcohol, high acid, and maybe not messing with the wine too much. What else, what else are the other factors that make up the, the producer's in moving, or or is that it? And is it is it as simple as you have a, a balanced wine and you don't mess with it too much, and it's going to speak of the place that it comes from, and, and you're good to go? Yeah, I think it's um, it's a dangerous territory to talk about alcohol because I've had some beautiful California wines that have you know rather moderate alcohol. Um, so um, you know, some exa- one example is like are the wines from Calera, Josh Jensen up in Mount Harlan. You know, those are Pinot Noirs that can have 14 points of alcohol, but they age for 15 or 20 years and they're still balanced and, and really compelling wine. So, um, you know, I don't think we ever want to let alcohol be a benchmark. That's certainly something that we like. Um, if nature provides opportunities to make lower alcohol wines as it did, um, particularly in Sonoma in 2010 and 11, we had very cold vintages then great. But, um, I think, you know, what you said is right. It's the, the goal is balance. And that, you know, balance can be achieved by a number of factors. But I think we can hedge our bets, again, by looking for fruit in appropriate places. You know, if the vineyard is delivering fruit that's in balance, chances are, you know, we have got a good shot of making a wine that, that, that ends up being in balance. Um, the other thing I think is just not, you know, having the courage not to stew the, uh, the sauce, <laughs> over, overwork the sauce. Um, you just sometimes got to leave stuff alone and, and, uh, trust the process a little bit. So as few inputs as possible, uh, that's the other thing. Let's not touch the wine any more times than we have to. I just heard this, uh, you know, you, you hear a lot from winemakers, wine is, wine is made in the vineyard and we just try to not mess it up in the winery. And usually those are the winemakers that, that I like the most. Uh, but I just heard this, I can't remember where, but it stayed with me so much. It's that you can't make gold more gold. 
So don't mess with it. Like it, it right. can't be more gold than it already is. So you, you can't. You, once once nature's given you really great fruit, mm-hmm. like what's the point? Like what's the point in adding the two hundred approved additives to it? That's right. Well, yeah, especially if you're starting off with with compelling raw material. You know, the the example I like to use is like you know, sushi chef gets a a beautiful piece of toro in the kitchen. All he's got to do is cut it right. You know, you don't have to fuss with it and make it look pretty on the plate and dress it up and season it. It's fine. You know, it's perfect. There's nothing, no way to improve it. Um, and so we kind of look at that um, as our jobs as, as wine producers is let's let's go out and get the Toro Tuna raw material from, you know, from the Hirsch Vineyard, from the Hansel Vineyard, from Demuth Vineyard. And let's have the courage to do as little as possible to this wine in the cellar because we're going to trust in the raw material. Yeah, and just like that piece of Toro tuna, I, I, find, I find that your wines are, are fine and generally perfect as well. I, I, I just love them. I'm such a fan. Uh, you can you'll, you'll definitely find them at uh, at Le Picho by the glass and on the bottle list. And uh, I'm sure you'll uh, you'll see see Matt hanging out drinking a glass at the bar one of these days. Most definitely, uh, Matt. Thank you so much. Uh, like I said, I'm I'm a huge fan, and and I'm just so grateful that that you came out to Bushwick this morning. Thanks, Joe. Great to be thanks here. And thanks you for listening to In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.